surrender. Yeah. That's really the biggest one. Surrender. surrender. And what I mean by that is pay attention, realize that I can't do it myself, because that's what it took for me, you know. All right, welcome to the Recovery Edge Cast. My name is Alfredo, I am your host, and I am an alcoholic. And today, it's my honor to have JR, um, who I met at Primary Purpose in Johnstown, Colorado. Um, how are you doing, JR? Well, I'm doing great, like I told you, it's best day ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's nice and gloomy out there today. Well, we're getting a, we're getting a little special late spring moisture, which makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, well, we could dive into the weather, but that's not why we're here. <laughs> no. And it's Colorado, so we can talk about it all day. <laughs> it's funny, weather happens every day, whether you like it or not. That's right. <laughs> Wise words. Um, why don't we start with your sober date? My sober date is uh, June 26, 1985. So how many, how long is that? 37 years and some, and some days. 37 years and some, yeah. Almost 38 here, coming up on, close June, to 38. Yeah. Well, congratulations, that's amazing. <clears throat> Still one day at a time. One day at a time, even after 37 years, one day at a time. Well, one day at a time to me means I have to, every day, I wake up every day, and the main thing that I focus on every day is to remember what my last drunk was like. And my last drunk was what I call the perfect drunk. I was uh, struggling financially, mentally, physically, every way you can imagine, estranged from my family completely um, struggling to, to get enough money to drink. And uh, I went and saw a friend of mine who owned a bar down on South Broadway in Denver. <clears throat> and I gave him a hot check for $25 cash. Well, I mm -hmm. took that money and didn't spend it in his bar. I took it to a VFW at the corner of Wadsworth and... and uh, I think it's Wadsworth and Colfax. There was an old VFW there. I'm a veteran and I have a lifetime membership. Well, I found out a long time ago that veterans, when you go into a, if you're a veteran or member and you go in there and have drinks back in those days, they didn't even use ice cubes very much. We just used our fingers. If we put four fingers out, that's how much whiskey we wanted in the glass, <laughs> basically. And I started drinking that day about one o'clock, between 12 and one, sometime in that time frame. And drinks were really cheap. So I had 25 bucks to spend on drinks. And I'm drinking straight whiskey. That's why I didn't like foo-foo stuff. I didn't do Manhattans or that kind of stuff. I liked real serious alcohol. And that day down there, I started off with you know, this typical crap, I'm, I'm uh, you know, you go in there and you, you start telling stories and you embellish on them and you lie and you tell stories to these guys and they're telling stories back to you, which you got to cut about in half of what's true, what's not. 
but I, I just kept it up and I just kept drinking and drinking and and tried to pick a fight with a couple of guys and they were smart enough to realize that I was pretty drunk and they didn't they didn't want to punch me out. So I got by and finally about eight o'clock that night I was I fell off the bar stool. And I literally had a struggle to get back up onto my feet. I mean, I couldn't, literally could not walk. But I can still see that today. One of the things I like to do is I can blink my eyes and see that whole drunk. Hmm. It's important that I remember that because that's what I don't ever want to go back to. So, you know, being a good alcoholic back in those days, I was estranged from my soon-to-be ex-wife. And I, uh, I picked up the phone. And, and uh, I, I had, I think I, I don't remember if they gave me a quarter or nine or nickel or whatever the hell it was, but I called her and she answered the phone and I said, I'm really drunk and I'm over here at this VFW and, uh, and I, I need you to come and get me because I can't drive. And she said to me, USOB, you got yourself drunk there. You go ahead and get yourself home. And I, being a good alcoholic, you know, we know how to take it out on our, our we, we, we really work on our families hard. And what I did was I threw it right back in her face. I said, well, if I kill somebody on the way home, it'll be your fault, you know. And then again, I got the SOB thing right back at me. And she says, okay, I'm going to come and get you and I'll bring Joe and he can drive your car. Joe is my middle son. Hmm. So they showed up there and I got in her car and I lived in a, literally lived in a little rat-infested shack out by Rocky Flats in those days. It was a, a dismal place, trust me. And she, of course, I had to listen to her all the way home. And the, the interesting thing about this drunk for me was, like I said, I can remember all of it. And even though as drunk as I was, the clarity for the drunk itself is very solid in my mind and what, how it actually, what it was like. And the, and the discomfort and the things that go along with being drunk. And so we got out there finally to my place and she parked at the driveway and the house was probably 152 feet back down this gravel driveway. My son drove my little pickup down there. And the thing that hurt me the most at the time, and it started right that night, it started. I got out, went to get out of her car, and of course I had to barf inside of her car for her to make her really happy. That redhead was about, if she'd had a gun, she'd have shot me. <laughs> but anyway, I got out of the car, and I couldn't walk. I still was unable to really walk. I was falling down drunk. So I was literally on my hands and knees in this gravel driveway, crawling towards my house. And my son, I can see him right now, my son was coming up the driveway. And he had his head down, his eyes cast down, and I looked at his face. I'm telling you, that's a, a look I will never forget. The look on that kid's face. He was, uh, at that time, he was 18, and he, 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 within a short period, not too long after that, he went in the Navy. But anyway, so I walked, I saw him, and I crawled down to the house, and I managed to get a hold of the door and get inside. And I'd reached that point in, in my life where that I went through it, for a long time prior to this. I was at that point to where I no longer slept. At nighttime, when I 
put my head down or whenever it was, it was passing out. There was no sleep involved, very little sleep. And there was no waking up involved in those days. That was all coming to. Well, I came to the next day sometime, and first thing in my mind was, I need a drink. And I really wanted a drink. I mean, I really was. And it, it, by about four or five hours of being there alone in the house, the, the slowly the shakes started a little bit with me. And uh, the, the next morning, I was in full-blown DTs. I was shaking, baking, sweating like a, you know, crazy person. I mean, just the, the booze was just pouring out of my body. And what I understand now today is that it wasn't just that drunk, but I had I had so much alcohol in my system. Prior to that drunk, my body could not process alcohol at that time at all. So a couple of drinks would really could get me drunk. It didn't take a lot. But I, of course, when I picked one up, I couldn't stop. So I went through about four days of shaking and baking, as I call it, and I saw stuff on the walls. And at one point, I crawled in the closet in the house, and I had my dog there, and I put her outside because she was talking to me. And I unplugged the telephone because it was talking to me. And, and I went in that closet, and I had a gun in there. And I seriously considered doing it, you know, using the gun. And for some reason, I didn't. And I understand today pretty much why. I mean, I understand now more than I did back in the day. So the, the, at the end of four days, I pretty much stopped shaking, and I was able to take a shower and get the, the smell off me pretty good. And, I, of course, my big thing was is I wanted to... I wanted to uh, get back within the graces of my sons. I didn't care much about the ex-wife. That wasn't a big deal for me. And I'm sure she felt the same way. So what I did <clears throat> was I, I called over to, she, the boys were at her house. I called over there and Joe answered the phone. And unbeknownst to me, she'd been taking them to Al-Anon meetings. And so they were, they were kind of cautious about dealing with me and backtrack just a little bit but a few months quite a few months almost a year before that they had an intervention on me at the house and that morning of that intervention I sat at a table and the four of them sit there and told me how my drinking was affecting them and stuff and I looked them right in the eye and said you don't understand I don't feel good unless I'm drinking I had no no that way so I wanted to get back in their good graces. And, you know, to me in those days, the idea was to make somebody feel sorry for me. That was my alcoholic behavior. You know, if you felt, if you felt any empathy or sympathy towards me, that gave me a chance to get one up on you where you would do what I wanted you to do, you know, which was to let me back in, so to speak. Well, this kid answered the phone, and I said, he said, you know, I said, I wanted to call up, and he says, don't tell me you're sorry. I said, I won't. I said, he said, what are you going to do? And I didn't have a plan. And I blurted out, I'm going to get help. And all he said was, when? And I would back myself into a corner right there. And I said, well, I can't go today. And I don't know why I couldn't go that day, but he says, but I'll go tomorrow. And then he said, where? 
And I was thinking, what am I going to tell this kid to make him, you know, if he had this feel sorry for an old man? And I said, well, I'm going to go see a priest. And he says, call me after you do, and he hung up. Well, I backed myself into a corner. I lied myself into a corner. Mm -hmm. And the next day, I had no idea where I was going, but I says, I got to go talk to a priest somewhere. I didn't know any priest to go talk to. But there was one off of 57th and, um, that had been Kipling or Washington, I don't know, 57th Kipling, I think there was a Catholic church over there. And I'm a Catholic, but I'd never been to that church. So I went over there and I knocked on the door of the rectory, you know, where the priests live. And this lady came to the door and when she opened the door, she looked at me like, you some kind of bum or something? I mean, I thought I was smelling pretty good by this time, but I don't know if I was or I wasn't. So anyway, uh, I said, I need to talk to the father. And she says, he's busy. Do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I don't. But I said, I really need to talk to him. Well, all the time my head is saying to me, you know, you're going to go in there and give this priest some sad story. He's going to give you 50 bucks and tell you where you can go get a little job and you'll be back on your road here. And no, no, I wasn't thinking about needing a drink by that time. I actually had kind of come to the fact that the first step was in my mind big time. You know, I had no choice. If I picked a drink up, I knew I would get drunk. You know, I knew that I, would, I couldn't stop because it, my pattern was for all those years was once I started, I just couldn't stop. So anyway, she tells me to wait. She shuts the door and leaves me on the stoop. And five minutes, she finally comes back and says, the father will see you. So I go into a little office, and it's eh, about like the size of this little area right here. I'm sitting in with you. And he's across it. And he's a, he's a guy in his, I would say, in his late 30s, early 40s. Nice gentleman, nice priest. And I sit down, Father, and he says, what's going on? I said, I'm having a trouble. And he says, well, I said, I'm having a trouble with my drinking. And he blurted out at me. He said, are you an alcoholic? And it, it didn't shock me or surprise me or shame me or anything. It just didn't occur. And I said, yeah, I think I am. And he says, well, okay. He says, um, uh, let me do something here. He says, let me make a phone call. I want you to talk to this lady. What the heck? You know, what are we, what, what's going on here? I'm talking to this priest. I, give me the 50 bucks. Get me out of here. Get me, <laughs> get me taken care of. Give me back in the good graces of my kids, you know? Or the bad graces. Any grace would have done. So anyway, he calls this woman up and he says, here, talk to her. And I pick up the phone and I'm talking and she says, hi, my name is Marilyn. She says, I, I'm the manager of the Alano Club over here. And ever, I thought, what the hell is an Alano Club? Never heard of that before. Well, when they told me where it was, I knew exactly where it was. And she says, you need to come over here and talk to me. And the priest said, yeah, you got to go talk to this lady. And I, and I thought, well, where's my, where's my, what are we going to do here? You know, no, go talk to this woman. She says, we're not busy right now. You can come over here right now. Well, it turns out the Alamo Club was on 44th, right behind the old Lakeside Amusement Center. L&L Coin upstairs in the back. That's where they were. So I go over there and I sit down with Marilyn. 
She gives me a cup of coffee and we start talking and she's asking me a few questions. And we talk for, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes, somewhere along that line. Pretty soon she stopped me and she says, you know what, you, you know what? I said, no, what? She said, you're full of shit. <laughs> and I says, well, what, what's the deal? She says, no, she says, you're in denial. She says, you're not, you're not wanting to see what the problem is. Hmm. I was still at that phase where, you know, everything was my ex-wife's problem. My kids needed to be nicer to me. Uh, the people that had fired me from jobs or jobs I lost were all bad people. You know, all that stuff. And so I'm sitting there and she says to me, finally, the, the end of the conversation, she was real nice about it. And I didn't know at the time, but she had a nickname. And her nickname was the Ayatollah. <laughs> and... She was a character. She became a very, very wonderful, good friend. So anyway, she told me, she says, well, you know, there's a meeting Sunday night at that church out there. I said, okay. She says, you got to be there. I said, okay. And she says, you got to be there every Sunday. They have the meeting there every Sunday night. And then she passively said, we have meetings here every day, which I didn't take as, I was, as an invite. I just took it as a knowledge. So I went back and I called the boys and I told them and they said, we'll be there to go with you Sunday night. So my first meeting was at that church and all three of the boys went with me. They, uh, they went to an Al-Anon meeting and I went to the AA meeting. And I don't know how it happened or why it happened or how it, it absolutely how it happened, but I had enough money to buy a big book. And I don't know where the money came from. I think it was $6 for a big book. So I bought one, and like so many people said over the years, you know, I looked at the steps on the wall and the traditions, and I looked at the, the, the promises were up there and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm picking and choosing which would work for me. You know, I, I had to figure it out right away because I, I knew that I was going to be you know, I'm smart enough that I can do what I want to do with this deal. I didn't, I had no concept of one person helping another person or why we now do that in AA, why, why it's important that we pass along our stories and our stuff to our friends and understand and start. The one thing I did know that everybody that talked in that meeting that night, I could relate to something they said. And even though I, I didn't, I couldn't tell you who really was there. I, I later found out some of them had long-term sobriety, et cetera. But anyway, we left, and my son, in the meantime, had convinced his mom that my youngest son that he could come and stay with me, as long as I didn't drink. So we said, "Well, we'll we'll make it till next Sunday." So I waited. It took me three Sundays to get my first three meetings in, and the third Sunday. Michael and I were on the way home, and by this time, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, actually feeling pretty good, and I'm not having any um, jonesing or anything like that for a drink. I, I just didn't want to drink anymore. I, I, I knew that if I started, I couldn't stop. That's the truth. So on the way home, I will never forget this. Michael looked over at me and said, Dad, how many more times do you think you're going to have to go? And I looked him right in the eye and said, I think six will do it. And I, I thought that that was kind of a commitment to him. And, but the next morning at 9 a.m., 
I was sitting on the steps of that Allen Mill Club. And I pretty much did not leave there for the next five or six years. I went through a period of time of the kid and I struggling dramatically. Marilyn took pity on me. They actually hired me there. I didn't have any money. The kid and I survived that first year on less than $900. And I, they paid me a dollar and a half an hour to work behind the counter. They, they sold uh, pickles. You know what pickles are, those mm -hmm. little scratch tickets. And they sold other stuff. The club had a little profit money in. So they paid me a dollar and a half an hour to work. And I uh, was reluctant to pay attention to what my sponsor, I had a good sponsor, was trying to get me to do this job he wanted me to, to go and interview for. I, I, I thought it was beneath me. You know, I was going to have to be a telemarketer. And I didn't like that. It didn't sound very good to me. But anyway, another guy came along and offered me, I got offered a job from my past experience and my other life, I was pretty successful, I was very successful. And this guy hired me to be a sales manager, put me on the road. And uh, it involved me driving all over the Western United States, basically from Chicago to California, it's my territory. And I was setting up new dealers for this company and get products set up and I organized this company for him and did a lot of stuff. And that, that was, uh, it was fruitful for me in one way, but the problem I didn't realize with it until much later, it was an ego-based job. He didn't pay me well. He didn't care what we kid and I were doing. We starved, I missed paychecks, and th I really struggled. And my last trip for the company, I went to Chicago, and the biggest issue I had in Chicago was, first I got lost in that town. And I had a hell of a time trying to find an AA meeting. I had, I looked for literally three days. I could not, the streets, it was, it was so foreign to me. Now I'd been to Chicago, but I'd always been downtown working conventions. So I'd never had that experience before. And I struggled, but I sold a tremendous amount of product for the company and did really well. And I was living, I had to get cash for the stuff I was selling these guys to a lot of it because they didn't give me an expense account or anything. I had to do that. Anyway, it was, it was really driving me crazy. And at this time, I was close to two years sober. And um, it hit me that the main reason I was doing all this work was it was ego-based. It was not uh, a, a, a good thing to do. It was a bad job for me. And... The way that job started off, the very first day that I, that I was on the road with that job, the story in the book about the salesman and the car salesman mm -hmm. hit me right between the eyes. Because what happened on that very first time, I went to Laramie, Wyoming, my first trip out, and I sold a whole bunch of product to this guy up there that I knew real well, and my ego was going crazy. You are the world's greatest salesman. You're the mm -hmm. best and I was on that road from Laramie going to Glenwood on Woods Landing, if you know where that is, and it goes down through Walden and that way. And on the way there on Woods Landing, there's a bar. Hmm. And I saw that bar, and I'm driving that little truck. And I wanted to go in there and have a Coke and a sandwich and tell everybody what a good salesman I was. 
And that little truck would not turn in that driveway. We kept going to Glenwood, and I made it to a meeting that night. But that was just the way that culminated to the other end of this thing. So that night, when I that night coming home from Chicago, I called Michael from Burlington and said, meet me at the plant. I'm going to throw my keys in the door. I'm done. I wrote a resignation letter out. And so I quit that night. I mean, that night when I hit when I hit Broomfield, where the office was, I put all the inventory inside. I put all their stuff inside. I got my stuff out of my desk. And the kid picked me up, and I threw the keys through the mailbox door and left a note and told him I couldn't do it anymore. And he owed me a paycheck, which I never got. Anyway, uh, fast forward a couple of weeks, three weeks, maybe a month at the most, uh, come home from from a meeting on Friday night. And on my little rat shack out there, there was a paper on the door. Eviction notice from the sheriff of Boulder. From uh, At that time, it was, I think there were, I don't remember, Boulder wasn't a county yet, but it was from the, the sheriff out there or probably whatever one it was. It said, your stuff will be out on Indiana Avenue Monday morning. And I was, I was terrified. I didn't know what the hell to do. And Michael asked me what was going on, and I couldn't even tell him, you know. So I went in my little bedroom that night, in my big book, and I just cracked it open. And it opened up to that story, The Man Who Mastered Fear. Well, it didn't really relate to me, but I said, if that's what I'm supposed to read, I'm going to read it. And I hadn't slept. I told you about passing out. I wasn't passing out. I just couldn't sleep anymore. I was anxiety and mm-hmm. what I call blunder brain going on in my head. I had all that thoughts jumping around in my head. So anyway, <clears throat> I, I uh, um, read that and I got out on my knees after I read that story. And I said, God, please let me sleep. And it was somewhere between 11 and 12 o'clock that I, I remember crawling back into bed. And then when I woke up the next morning, it was about 6.30 or almost 7 o'clock. I'd slept that time. And I, I realized that if I asked, maybe something would happen. And I, I've been told by many people different times that, you know, how do you know God helped you get sober? Well... Like I said, he's the only one I ever asked. <laughs> so that night, the next morning, I went to the Alamo Club, and I walked in with my hat in my hand, literally just, you know, humble, and there's the three old farts sitting there, sitting at the uh, table. And I stood in front of them. I stood up in front of them, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm gone. I'm shot. I'm willing to do anything you guys ask me to do. And they just, one of them looked at me and said, it's about time, hmm. you know. And my sponsor had been on my butt about doing some stuff. And so the first thing he said was, you're be, being evicted, right? I said, yeah. So well, we need you to call your landlord. I did not want to call my landlord. He's the last guy I wanted to talk to. I mean, you know, hell, he wanted me thrown out on the street. Why would I want to talk to this guy, right? 
There you go again, my ego, my self-will, all of those things that prevented me from being real and taking an inventory and running my life like a business instead of a damn drama, you know. So I, and back in those days, one of them handed me a dime. That's all it cost to call him on the wall. And I told him, he said, and they said, you got to tell him what's going on with you. Well, I called him and I told him and he was mad. He said, you know, if you'd have told me this, I could have, I would have helped you. He says, now I'm going to stop the eviction. You got 30 days to get out of that house. And I thought, oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then I talked to him a little bit more and he said, and I, and I said that, and they called up and said, they're, they're going to shut my electricity off and they're going to shut my telephone off. And back in those days, I could go to Arvada and sit down and talk to somebody from the electric company, you know, from, and they said, you get your butt over there, go tell this woman that they're, and that's who I talked to on the phone. So you go tell her what's going on with you. But you got to tell her the truth. No stories, no lies, no, no drama. So I went over and sat down with this lady and told her. It was a pivotal day in my life. And, and she pulled my records up from all the years I'd been a customer. And of course, prior to all this happening, before I got, got, became this mess, my bills were paid. I had good credit with, the, with them and everything. She said, I'm going to give you extended credit. We're going to put you on minimum billing and change it around so you, you, don't, you don't have to worry about this. Will you be able to pay it later? Of course, I'm, and I meant it sincerely. Yes, I will. I'll, I'll pay. So she kept my lights on. Same thing at the phone company. I go over there, talk to a lady. She kept my phone on. <laughs> well, interestingly, that Saturday, I was supposed to go to the junior high over there and get Michael re-enrolled for summer school. That was $25 to get the kid enrolled. And at first I was ready to write a hot check for the 20, you know, I wrote another hot check for $25 and it didn't work out very well, but I was going to do it again. But I talked to one of the coaches and I, and I said, you got to tell him what's going on. One of the guys I knew. And I told him, he said, just a few minutes. And he went and got on the phone and he put me on the phone with this lady from the district or whatever she was. And I told her, you know, basically, and she says, well, look, she says, do you think you could pay it at the end of summer? It was early June, you know. And I said, I think I can. She says, okay, we're going to let him get enrolled into summer school. Well, he and his brother, several years before, three years before, had been in a horrible car accident. And Michael had uh, lost his short-term memory almost completely. And we just couldn't concentrate at all. So summer school was kind of a iffy, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I got the kid into summer school. Well, Dick, my sponsor at that time, had been on my butt to go down to the VA Center at 8th and Knox Court. There's a VA center there, a Veterans Outreach, it was called. And we didn't have any groceries. The first thing they did was hand me a big box of groceries. And we had our house back. But most of the stuff in there was like cornmeal and flour, and I don't know what to do with that crap. <laughs> I mean, if it ain't bacon or eggs and, 
you know, I don't know what to do with it, hamburger. Anyway, I took it and I was grateful. And they had that job posted down there for a job working for this little company called Mountain Bell. And that was back at a time in Mountain Bell's history where the very first um, what was called electronic switching had come out and it was where they put in call waiting, call forwarding, all that stuff was going on and they were hiring people to sell it. Well, you, when you told people about it, they just bought it. It was not a sales job. So anyway, so they, I had to go down and interview for this job and I go down and I thought, well, this I'll never make 30 days out of this deal, right? So anyway, I go down there and I interview with this first lady and she says, well, I think you'd do really good at this job. And I said, okay. And she says, but uh, we don't have an opening for the next couple of weeks before we'd be doing a, uh, a formal interview. And then we have to get you set up for a training class. And I thought, okay, figure it out some way. I'm counting the days now. I'm down to, I got three weeks left roughly three weeks left, and I'm back out on the street again. So anyway, I, I, she asked me for a phone number. Well, they, they finally did shut my phone off. And I, only number I had to give them was the Alano phone number of the Alano Club. And I was really worried about that. And I, cause I had to tell her why, why they would be answering Alano and what the deal was, you know, and when she could call and when she couldn't call because they had a lot of meetings there every day. So I told him the truth. I told her what was going on with me. And she said, well, that's no problem. She says, I think you do well in this job. And I've been sober almost two years. They were pretty happy with that. So anyway, she says, we'll be giving you a call. You know, I don't know when, but she'll be giving you a call. So I left there and went right over to the Alamo Club. And I walked in there and sit down got a cup of coffee, and I hadn't been there 10 minutes, and the phone rang over there. <laughs> and this lady says, we have an opening for you to take the, the uh, interview tomorrow morning. Okay, I'll be there. Well, I went down there to that interview at this place, and it, it was a contractor that was working for Mountain View. They did the screening for Mountain Bell. And this lady, I passed that, and she says, now you're going to have a formal interview, and you're going to have to take a test. I said, what do you mean a test? She's meaning, she's you're going to have to take the service operator's test to work here. I hadn't taken a test in 25 years, 30 years. I don't test, you know. Ugh. So anyway, she says, but we haven't got the test scheduled for another week or so. And I went back to the Alamo Club, and you got it. I was there about 20 minutes, and the phone rang, and they had me on the test the next day. So I go down there and I go in this room and there's I, I'm, there's about a hundred people and there's only ten openings for this job and I'm thinking oh my god so I, I I this test and the whole thing with the test was they put a headset on you and you had to do the test the answers the questions but then they would interrupt you and ask you questions and you had to answer them and to see if you could multitask like that. Hmm. Hmm. So anyway, I did the test, and I thought, oh, this is, this is absolute failure. I thought, shit, I, you know, I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I went out there, and I'm sitting in the lobby, 
And all these people with briefcases and suits and ties and women all dolled up. And here I am in a pair of jeans and a, and a you know, corduroy shirt or something. And I'm sitting there and they, they keep walking out. They're, they call them in, they walk out. They call them in, they walk out for like an hour. And finally this gal came out and there was 10 of us sitting there. And she says, you 10 passed. And she says, your training is going to start Monday morning. We're going to put you in a new class. We've been doing 10-day training for this job. We're going to put you in a class that will be six to eight weeks long. We're going to see if, in, if giving you more self-confidence and better is going to help you be a better salesperson. We're going to see if it's worth putting the extra time into training. Now think about this. They'd hired hundreds of people for these jobs and every one of them had 10 days on the floor selling. Well, these three women that taught this class, when I showed up there, oh, and they offered me $250 a week training bonus and $250 a week salary. 500 bucks a week back in those early 80s, that was a lot of money. And the paycheck was every week. In three weeks, Mike and I had an apartment with a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. But anyway, these women were so great. They started us on the phone. Our teaching us about what these products were going to sell. And then we went into every day about how you feel about this. And, I did, and they gave us butterflies and told us we'd be free. And, and I did. they were all taking notes in there. They were a bunch of college kids. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take notes. I just was intense. I'm very dyslexic. And then I said, you're so intense. You just, I said, well, what do you, where? she says, well, are you getting it? I said, what do you want me to tell you? I could, I could talk back to her exactly what she'd said for the last half hour. I had it right up here. So anyway, we trained for several weeks and they finally took us down on the floor. And in this, in the interim, I'm going to meetings every day. As a matter of fact, the lady that hired me at the temporary service, mm -hmm. she let us start a meeting up there at noontime every day. She was another one of the angels in my life. Hmm. I like to, you know, my favorite thing is God winks. And mm -hmm. this woman was a very Christian woman, and she loved us alcoholics. And my sponsor, we went up there every day at noon, five days a week for a meeting at her building. So anyway, and then when I didn't do that, I met him at the office down there. So that first time on the floor, we were told they had a computer. We had a list of customers on the computer where we could pull up customers. And they said, you know, put your phone on unavailable. We don't want you available. We want you just to look and see if there's, if you see an account you think you want to call because you're comfortable with it. It's totally opposite of whatever they teach today. We want to see how that works. So I'm sitting there and being a good alcoholic, guess which button I had not pushed? Hmm. The unavailable one. I was available. So I'm sitting there. God's, God's my witness, my truth. My phone clicks in my ear and I think, first, my first indication, good old alcoholic, was to hang up. And I know I'm going to answer this call. I said, Mountain Bell, this JR, how can I help you? This lady on the phone says, well, I'm interested in that thing you guys call call forwarding. Can you tell me how it works? 
And I said, yeah, yeah, I can tell you how it works. And it, it paid a big commission, 50 cents commission for selling. <laughs> but I was enthralled. She was in Arizona. So I pulled up her thing and I told her all about it. And I said, do you mind if I ask you what you're going to use this for? And as God is my witness, she said, I'm going to use it for my Night Watch AA group. Wow. Really? So Amazing. That was my first sale. And all this stuff going on for all this time when I was in control. And when I truly turned it over and let God work in my life, mm -hmm. guess what? It worked. And it works just fine. Like There was an old timer that I used to go to meetings with a lot. And he was a funny guy. One of his favorite things was, you know, it works. And so we were at a meeting at a place that was a halfway house one night. And he always rode a bus. He never, never drove a car. And uh, one of the guys at the meeting there said if he was available to come and speak. And he said, sure. He, they looked at him and said, can you tell us how it works? He said, yes, I can. So he went there and he told his story. And the guy says, well, did you tell us how it works? He said, yeah. He said, well, how's it work? He says, just fine. <laughs> and that was the end of his story right there. Just fine. And it's true. When I put it in God's hands, everything is just fine. You know, um, so that was my start of my career. Now, there was a small shift at Mountain Bell. And they went over to selling these directories that were called cross-reference directories. And they said, do you want to try that? And I said, yeah, what the heck, I'll try it. I was doing okay. I'm making over $1,000 a week and, you know, doing well. Mm -hmm. So I start selling these. I get the training for these cross-reference directories, and there again, my first call. I get a call, and it's from somebody in the Salvation Army. Wanted to buy one of these cross-reference directories. And I asked them what it's for, and they said, well, we're building a, a database for our AA members at the Salvation Army Group. Hmm. So they're my second important call through this whole thing. There it was again, God working in my life, what I could not do. And I sold quite a few of those. I did pretty well. But the main thing, all that time, I never lost focus on making my meetings and doing what I had to do to stay sober. Hmm. And um, three or four years into that job, they interviewed me for a job with the cellular industry. And for, for, for uh, at that time, it was, I forget what they called it, but it was whatever, whatever Mount Bell called their cellular at that time. And I went in there and did that job and did well. And sure enough, I got a call one day, and this guy had recommended me to go work for this other company. And this other company... Uh, hired me away from Mountain Bell to be the manager of their, basically their consumer base. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because I was there a very short time and I sat down with the vice president of the company at the time and I told him that I'm an alcoholic and I told him what I do, what I, what I you know, what, what I needed and what he could expect from me. I says, you know, I'll give you everything I got, but I want you to know I don't go to parties and drink. If somebody asks me, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want you to be embarrassed. 
and just stuff I thought would be interesting for him. And he thanked me very much. And, you know, I went on to become one of the top managers in that company. And I, I started with just about eight feet of shelving and about 25 cellular phones. When I left, I had 37,000 square foot warehouse. And I developed almost a half a million agents or half a million customers helped develop it. But everywhere I went on the road, I was on the road a lot of times, twice, three times a month. I went to meetings all over the western United States, Montana, Wyoming. I know one night I was, well, this prior to me getting this job, I was on that other job. I was coming home from Seattle and I'd had a horrendous time up there trying to get meetings and stuff on this show. And I stopped in Kemmer, Wyoming, not, no, Kemmer, uh, Big Piney. And I pulled in the motel there. And the lady, when I paid cash, she didn't like it very well. She was looking for a credit card, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I go to the hotel room, and there's a little skinny phone book, you know, about, looked like maybe 100 pages the most. And, if, and every time I hit a motel, the first thing, even today, when I, my wife and I travel, first thing I do is open up the phone book, see where the AA meetings are, wherever we are. I looked that night and I called and the guy answered the phone. He said, Sheriff's office. <laughs> I said, oh boy, what have I done here? And I told him, I said, I'm looking for the AA meeting. He says, where are you? And I told him. And about 20 minutes later, this big old Bronco pulled up with a cherry on top, parked mm -hmm. right in front of my room. Mm -hmm. And I could see the lady in the hotel, man. She she was looking out the door like, they're going to take this guy out of here in handcuffs. <laughs> well, that guy drove me 70 miles, that deputy sheriff, wow. to an AA meeting. And I went to the meeting, and he stayed in his car. He did not come in. He wasn't an alcoholic. And I asked him, I said, why do you do this? He says, I've scraped enough of you guys up off the road that if you're willing to stay sober, buddy, I'll do anything in the world to help you. So these people along the way in my life, I had another lady on that same trip up in, in Grand Ron, Idaho, Grand Ron, Oregon, I think it was. Snowing like hell, pulled into the hotel, picked up the phone, called, and the little kid answered the phone and said, Hello, and I said, Hi, is your dad there? And he says, what are you looking for? I says, I'm looking for the AA meeting. He says, just a minute. And he called his dad, and his dad came to the phone. And I said, hey, I'm looking for the AA meeting. He says, oh, I'm not an AA. I'm, I'm, I'm Elna. My wife's the AA. He says, but she'll be there to pick you up in 10 minutes. She drove up in a van that night and took me to a meeting in all that snowstorm. And that's the way life has been for me. I can't tell you how many times I've been to meetings and Places like Paulson, Montana, and Sheridan, Wyoming, and all over the place. Back in 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 uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, and in uh, Iowa, used to go to a huge meeting there in Iowa, and they broke it up into sections. And they had beginners, they had big book study, they had this, they had Native American meetings in different rooms, and I always went to the beginner meetings. But I, I, you know, AA is, it is a way of life. It's not a, for me, it's not a program. It has never been really a program. And the more I live this way of life, the better my life gets. You know, I, I have a favorite saying, you know, 
Don't sweat the small stuff. And guess what? Everything is small stuff. You know, I believe that today. And the, the other things that I had to learn that, that helped me, that some of the things that helped me the most in the, the toolkit, we talk about our toolkit. You know, we open that book up and there's a kit of tools in there. And I started to learn that there are serious, there are serious tools. The very first and earliest ones, of course, are a life run without a good inventory. It's like, it's a business. You know, we don't run our lives, at least I don't. I, I try not to run my life on emotion of any kind. And I try to get the drama out. I try to look, you know, peel it down to where you can see what's really going on. And right now, today, honesty is still the very best policy there is for me. And, and that, there's a, a part in making our amends that talks about, you know, not, not to do, not to injure anybody if it's going to harm them, not to do anything that would, you know, cause them harm if we just, if it's a self-serving amend and not a true amend. And amend means to make it right. It doesn't mean to, does not mean to just go say, I'm sorry. I tried that in a way. Two of my sons early on in the program, I was about seven years sober. And they both wrote me a letter that year. And it was in the summertime, if I recall. And neither one knew the other one had written the letter. And they both said what a crappy amends I'd made to them. <laughs> and in my seventh, in my, that was in my eighth year. Because I believe that they'd have wrote me that letter the year before. My attitude would have been more along the line of toughen up, buttercup. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, you got what you got. Take it or leave it. But I realized that those young men needed, not just them, but people needed more than me telling them what I think went wrong. I had to hear what they thought went wrong. And my sons exposed to me a lot of stuff that I had done that I kind of put on the back table and tried to pretend it never happened or didn't want to think about it because it embarrassed me. Mm hmm and so I wrote back, I didn't call them, I wrote them back letters. We made arrangements, we went together, and we, we talked it out. We finally got that straight, and that took a long time. But those are the kind of things, the toolkit's there, you know. And I, I, I've had the honor of working with a lot of men in the program. Uh, you know, uh, I don't like to call myself a sponsor. I'm more of a closed mouth friend. And I, that's, I say that with, when I say that and I talk to new people, if we're talking on those basis, I really want them to know that what we talk about is between us, nobody else. I don't share that stuff with my wife. I don't share it with anybody else. And I think it's around one page, 26, that may, the book tells me that we're sensitive people. We have to be careful not to gossip. And if we do, we got to make sure that we can say it to the person we're talking about as well as. And those are really critical things for me. And I just went through a situation the other day at a meeting where I had to remind a guy about page 18. We're not there to give anybody a lecture. There's no lectures to endure, you know, none of mm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a voluntary thing. And we have, to, we have to remember we're not going to try to change that person when we're talking to a new person. It's not, our, it's not my job. 
My job is if they see something they want to talk about and they want to talk about it and they want to do the work, they want to read the book with me and we want to sit down and go through this thing. And I don't care if it takes six weeks or six years. To me, it's, you know, I don't want to procrastinate. So I'm a firm believer that the third step where it says next, we launched on a, a course of vigorous action. We start our fourth step, start cleaning the house. Hmm. Because without cleaning the house, without doing that stuff, and doing it properly, the best your the best your ability. And I know that after years, your 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 focus and your it'll change. You know, uh, see, at one point my life in AA was a guy told me this is a smorgasbord. That's you know a big table full of food and you eat what you want. And he said that's it. But the more I'm around, I become more focused now. My life is not a smorgasbord. It's centered now. It's centered on not being a, a bully, not being mean. Uh, I can, I can, you know, I can disagree with somebody though. Trust me, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I'm not an easy touch. I'm not one of those people, you know. Um, but I don't have to be mean to anybody. I don't have to. Uh, I've been reminded too many times of the things people do that, you know, yeah, did I do something like that? Yeah, you know. And judging is another big thing for me. I try not to judge people. Uh, we do it automatically, I think. I don't think there's a way to really prevent it in any real true fashion. But, you know, it's just not right. I don't know until I know the story. You just don't know until you know the story. So that's that's probably pretty much, you know, I had a few other incidents that I'd like to for, focus on a little bit here. It hit me. When I, when I was working for Mountain Bell there, um, there were some guys that were cheating. We were all paid on this commission, and we got, when we sold an extra phone line, it was for over a $100 commission on one phone line. Well, these guys, and they were guys, there weren't any women involved in it. They had met some of the regular operators downstairs, and when they got people calling, they got a call in that they wanted to add a phone line to their company, they would send them up to these guys, which was against the rules completely, 100%. And because the woman could have taken care of it right there. So she was feeding them these leads, and I found out about it. Well, in my infinite wisdom, you know, my infinite wisdom, I said, I'm going to expose these jerks. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take control. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hero to Mountain Bell, you know, or if they needed a hero. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the Monday morning meeting was coming up, and I thought about it pretty much all weekend about how I was going to be this hero and rat these guys out. That's what it was. And so I thought, you know, I'm driving down the old 23rd Street viaduct, that old metal viaduct, and I roll the window down in my little car, and I, and I, smart Alec, God, give me the words to give to Nick, my boss. So that I can expose these guys and look really good. That's basically what I was asking God for. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you, a booming voice said, shut your effing mouth. <laughs> and I went to that, and I was humbled. 
I mean, that's what I heard. I went to that meeting and I was sitting there and they started the meeting off and there's about 50 or 60 of us in there. And the big boss came up and said, we got to take care of some business here before we do anything else this morning. And he said, this has been going on. And he told, talked about it. And he says, the people that were doing this have been reprimanded and some of them may not be here anymore, but we want you to know that we, 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 we got it. I didn't need to do that. It wasn't my job. And I had to learn right then and there, focus on what I'm doing, not focus on anybody else. So, kind of the way it is. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I like it. Yeah, you know, uh, the what you said about, you know, it, it's easy for, like, if I'm just talking for myself, for my ego to get in there and be like, I need to do something. You know, like, I need to fix this. And then it's like, do I really? Oh, you know, a lot of times I find that these things fix themselves, you know. I don't know. I don't have to play the director. So that's a that was a good story there at the end. So do you have a home group? Basically, I still call the Johnstown, the uh, Thursday night meeting is mostly my home group. Mm-hmm. You know, I was involved in getting that meeting started way back when, before it was over there at the church. Wow. When I came to Johnstown, there was one meeting a week at the old Catholic church downtown. And uh, I started a meeting. I did it for 14 years at Johnson's Corner Truck Stop on Sunday nights. And that meeting morphed into the Thursday night meeting. And then uh, the Tuesday night meeting don't remember exactly how that happened, but that's part of spin off of that. Mm -hmm. At one point, we did have a women's meeting on Fridays. Hmm. We had four meetings a week here in Johnstown for quite a while. Hmm. And uh, it's going good now. They got the meeting twice a week there at the church, and you've done the other kind of um, service work meetings over there at the, at the church. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Jay started that one out there at the, in Milliken. That's turned out to be a pretty good little meeting. How have you seen a change out here over the last few years? Obviously, Johnstown is one of these towns that has grown a lot, but not big city grown yet. No, it's, it's um, the biggest issue I have with Johnstown meetings. They're, they're really good meetings here. The people are great. But I come from an atmosphere of Denver mm -hmm. where the clubs are pre prevalent. Yeah. And when I left, I managed the Alamo Club for two years before I left Denver. I was 20 years sober. Mm. And we had 37 meetings a week in that club. And down in Denver at that time, there were over 600 meetings a week. Mm. And the biggest thing I see here is in Loveland now, there are daily meetings. People go to them every day. But here we're having trouble with newcomers getting them to not just turn this into we only go one meeting a week or two meetings a week. Yeah, that's tough. It's not a good thing. They need to, they, my, my belief, I, I don't know this for sure, but my belief is, is if you don't get to multiple meetings a week and the home group idea is good and it's important, but getting to meetings is way more important to me. Mm -hmm. And I, my greatest dream would be that Johnstown will have a meeting every day. 
Hmm. You know, Johnstown Milliken type meeting every day. If it'll ever happen, I don't know. I know that when we lost Johnson's Corner, that was a big slap in the area here. Because we had that meeting up to, well, I started that meeting, and for three or four years, I was there alone most of the nights. It was for the truckers. And then, hmm. I think four years into it or something like that, around that time, I had to hold Karen, my wife, that that I was going to give it up because I was I'd only been I was the only one there for like a month and a half mm -hmm. on Sunday night all by myself. So I decided there were two or three people finally showed up at one of the meetings. I said the next Sunday I'm going to announce this meeting's closing. That night I had fifteen. Oh well, you can't close it then. And then <laughs> shortly after that, I never had less than ten or twelve, very few. And wow. the best thing that happened to me there. Mm -hmm was after about a month and a half of that, I know the truth. The truth is, I'm not the meeting. Mm -hmm. I came out of the calendar, I turned the meeting completely over to them, and we had a chair, a different chair every week. Because mm -hmm. I chaired for all those years by myself. And that's okay, I guess. But I've also started other meetings around Denver and stuff that maybe only lasted three or four months because nobody showed up. Mm -hmm. And I've had some that I started down there 30 years ago that are still gone. Mm. You know? So, um, no, when I turned that meeting over to the group, when Johnson, when the COVID hit and Johnson's Corner shut us down, and about three or, no, maybe a month ago, the woman in charge out there, she says, you know, we would let you start your AA meeting back up here at Johnson's Corner, and I says, well, I don't think we can. The problem we have over there at Johnson's Corner is they close at 8 o'clock. Hmm. I mean, they want the door locked at 8 o'clock. Well, our meeting started at 8 o'clock, and we always hung around, a lot of us hung around afterwards for the meeting afterward, the pie and the ice cream, et cetera. And, and they changed that, huh? They changed well, the hours? They, they don't have enough help to even help us. They couldn't set up the meeting. They said, we, we can start it, but you're going to have to set it up. That's a big room to go in there and set up by yourself. And uh, I told her, I says, well, I'll tell the people we can do it, but I don't think anybody's going to jump on the bandwagon. Hmm. You know, it's, uh, uh, they don't have the staff. That's the, and she told me that. She says, we don't have the staff, but we could, we're open to considering it. I thought, well. If business picks up, but now I don't know, you know, there's some changes going on here that are going to be different in this town, especially for the truck stop. You know about that. Bucky's is coming. Mm -hmm. and, and it looks huge. Well, there's what, 200 gas pumps? Mm -hmm. 70,000 square feet of, of uh, retail? No, I don't know what Johnson's what's going to happen over there. Now, let me ask you this question. If you could... Give yourself, like you have 37 years, almost 38. If you could give yourself a piece of advice to JR who has like 30 days, what do you think it would be? For me personally? Yeah. <laughs> Surrender. Yeah. That's really the biggest one. Surrender. Surrender. And what I mean by that is pay attention realize that I can't do it myself and because that's what it took for me you know 
that's that's the only thing I can really think of. I mean, if I if I were willing to turn it over, let God let go, that's the biggest thing I can think of. Thank you, Jr., for sharing your story on the Recovery Edge podcast, and thank you, listeners, for checking us out. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to find your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.